With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to Unsolved Murders. I'm Dr. Carlos. Can you help us solve a murder or an undetected serial killer? More than 200,000 Americans have died in unsolved homicides in the past 40 years. Help us solve a murder. So join us now. Let's go. We could be on now if we are, folks. Sorry for our delay. A little technical difficulties, but um, we're hoping to get started. Today is an episode of Unsolved Murders that you're going to be able to catch every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Obviously not today, because today we're going live for the first time. But if you have any questions or comments or concerns, please leave it on the chat. Let us know if you have questions, any kind of tips, any kind of things that you see on this Unsolved Murder. Today we're going to be talking about the Salsa Queen. Well, wait a minute. Let me welcome to the show, retired L.A. Sheriff, Homicide Detective Danny Smith. Welcome, sir. Thank you, Doc. Glad to be here. This is going to be a case that's been pretty popular out there right now. There's a lot of people looking at it. There's a lot of questions, a lot of strange things that have occurred. Um, I'm going to go ahead and read the case now. And I did send you something over there. But we're going to be looking at the case of the Salsa Queen folks. So let's go ahead and we're going to read the story to you here really quickly. We'll share the screen so you can see it and you can read along with us. And uh, we're going to find out what's happening. Again, if you have any questions, let us know. You can, you can, uh, or anything you think you see in this investigation, let us know as well. So here we go. This is the crime scene again of the Salsa Queen. Um, her name is Nori Amaya, is who we're looking at today. It's one of the distinct, they call it one of the district's most chilling unsolved crimes, the 2009 murder. It's been almost 12 years. Uh, a 38-year-old free spirit found strangled to death inside her Northwest apartment, a case that so far, so far puzzled investigators and her family. Uh, we're going to talk about why it's puzzled them because it's it is it's quite puzzling actually. There's a lot of things here that just don't make sense or don't add up, and we're going to try to make some sense out of it. Uh, it's now been seven years. According to the article, seven years. Now it's been nine years where her brother discovered the body of his sister inside her 16th Street apartment in Washington D.C. The community is called Woodner, W-O-O-D-N-E-R. It does have a security guard. The neighborhood is well. We'll find out a little bit more about the neighborhood as well. Um, he's here. He's obviously shocked. I don't blame him at all. But what he did is here after Nori was killed, Carlos struggled with his emotions, but we're going to look down what happened on that night in Hollywood. And that's Halloween night. And uh, I think detective Smith has a lot of information about why he thinks that's important. Nori Amaya worked uh, the early shift at the restaurant before slipping out for the evening. The self-proclaimed salsa queen of the DC wanted to dance. Uh, she went to the Rumba Cafe on 18th Street, which had been dating the owner, before heading to the Russia House and then to Bravo Bravo, where she met with her regular dance partner. But she didn't stay too long and took a cab home. In the surveillance video, you can see Nori walking into the Woodner lobby about 2.30 in the morning. She stops briefly to talk with someone at the front desk before checking her mail and walking down the hallway. When Sunday goes by with no word, her brother heads to the apartment Monday morning, Knocks on the door, gets no answer. By Monday afternoon, he feels something is wrong. And there's a point here that Detective Smith highlighted earlier is that she normally doesn't lock the door. According to the brother. According to the brother, which in this article doesn't mention that he found that unusual that she locked the door. In the video, you can see the sister, Carlos, and his, and his sister, younger brother, checking in at the front desk. When Carlos and his sister made it inside the 11th floor apartment at the Woodner, they found her in bed Wrapped in a comforter, some people say sheets, depending on the report you're reading. She was still dressed in her underwear, but she had clearly been murdered. And when homicide investigators arrived and began to examine the body, they found something chilling. 
they discovered all of her fingernails had been cut off. It seems the police say from keeping an attempt to keep the police from getting any DNA. According to her brother, to me, it's just incredible to see and to really understand that there's someone that can do that. It is unique. This is an interesting phrase. In just the first couple of days, officials were able to conduct numerous interviews, but they did not arrive with the true suspect in the case. According to Lieutenant Anthony Hayes with DC Police, they continue to hope <laughs> someone will come forward with information relative to what happened. Now, the Woodner apartment complex is huge. It's protected by cameras, focused on the front doors, side doors, back doors. But despite that, investigators were still unable to come up with a suspect, in part because so many people were wearing, this is what the Detective Smith was going to mention, Halloween costumes. As the investigation progressed, detectives were able to foil the killer's wicked plan to cover his tracks. They were uh, able to discover a DNA profile that has so far been used to rule out at least a number of people. A lot of the friends who knew her, my sister, who are male, have also been tested. They've been eliminated. Everyone I know has given their DNA willingly, including her boyfriend at the time. So far, no match has been found. When a match is made, Carlos believes it will be someone they knew. So back to you, Detective Smith. Lots here to unpack in this case. Yeah, there is. Um. You know, we can start with the uh, fingernails, and I think that probably everyone is going to come to the same conclusion. She must have scratched him while he was strangling her. But, uh, and, and we don't know what source of DNA was found, you know, but, but obviously the, the removing the DNA would have been to, uh, on the killer's part, to try to conceal that. So you've got a situation where when the brother and sister are allowed into the apartment by security, uh, the lights are off and the door is locked. And apparently she doesn't lock the door uh, for whatever reason. She, she just doesn't do that. And um, you'd have to assume that she came home at 2.30 in the morning. And one of the articles I read, she had dropped her you know, clothing off her dress, her mask, uh, her Halloween costume between the door and the bedroom, like she kind of disrobed on her way to bed. And then she's obviously murdered in bed. I can't find anything anywhere that says that there was any type of sexual assault. And that, that kind of changes everything about how you look at this murder. How so? Why would it change it for you? <clears throat> well, if it's a sexual assault murder, then, then you're going in a different direction. You're, you're looking for, you know, uh, other cases, sexual assault cases, you're, you're looking through databases of, of sex offenders. Uh, you know, it's a 700 unit apartment complex. So, um, you know, you, you've got a lot of people, you're gonna look at their backgrounds and, and try to, to determine, you know, if anyone fits into the uh, profile of someone that would commit that crime. But without a sexual assault, uh, and, and again, it's, it's usually mentioned if, if it happened, it usually is one of the things that they do uh, tell the public. And without it being mentioned, then you're, you're having to ask why, why was she murdered? You know, here's a, here's a young, attractive woman who's found uh, mostly nude, wearing panties only in her bed, and she's been strangled to death. And if it's not a sexual assault, then what's the motive for the murder? And that makes it very complicated because we were talking about that. That's really one of the elephants in the room or not the elephant in the room. What is missing here is the motive. Now you said that her boyfriend was married. Yeah. So she was seeing, uh, and apparently she was either in the process of breaking up with him or, or may, may, she may have just recently broken up with him. But my understanding is uh, he was at one of the clubs that she was at the night before the murder or the night of the murder. And, um, and he was married, and apparently the wife, uh, the the boyfriend's wife, knew that he was having this affair because there was information that the wife had called the restaurant wanting to speak with Nori uh, at some time previous to this. And um, so, you know, that of course is something that, as an investigator, you're gonna you're gonna hone in on that and and try to figure out, you know, what the dynamics are there. But uh, both were cleared by DNA. And even though it, it apparently has male DNA that was discovered at the crime scene, uh, the uh, detectives obtained DNA from both the husband and the wife. And, and of course, they were both cleared from the DNA. So 
Apparently, uh, neither of them physically murdered her. That's the interesting. I know we were back. We went back bantering back and forth. And again, folks, this is retired L.A. Sheriff Detective Homicide Detective Danny R. Smith. Um, we went back and back and forth on the aspect of possibly hiring somebody to kill her. Uh, the type of murder that the individual committed, and this is something you're going to discuss earlier, later on too, was the the uh, disagreement you had or a different viewpoint of the detective on the case. Um, Obviously, the person who went in there killed her. That was the only thing they did. There was nothing else so far that we know of, at least to the evidence that we have privy to. It seems like nothing else has happened. Uh, clipped the nails. So he was obviously, he, in my opinion, he knew what he was doing. He was planned. Walked out, turned off the lights, locked the doors, and headed out. And again, he could wear a mask if he's there. He could be working there. Or the other theory we threw out was a possible hitman. Look, a few weeks ago, they arrested a woman who hired a hitman to kill her husband. Yeah, it's not uncommon um, in, in these types of cases where, you know, you have to look far beyond the, you know, was it a neighbor? And, and again, it goes back to if if there's not an obvious motive, and, and it could be that, that the police are not sharing an obvious motive with us. So we have to say that, you know, with each one of these podcasts, we say, okay, look, we're not second guessing the investigation because they have, you know, uh, a lot of information that we'll never probably have. But um, from what we are able to, to research uh, that has been released through the media, you know, there's not a sexual assault. So there's no motive that's known at this time. So with that, then, then you really have a, a very strange case because, you know, if you assess her risk, you'd have to say she's, you know, she's not high risk, but you, you couldn't really say she's low risk either. And, and the reason I say that is, is anyone who's, you know, living in a major metropolitan city and going out to clubs, uh, being out late at night, uh, drinking, you know, you put yourself in some risk just by living a certain type of lifestyle. So, um, but again, why was she murdered? That's a good point. And by the way, folks, when, when Detective Smith was talking about risks, the FBI has a different classification. They have a classification system where they will look at the victim with low risk, medium risk, and high risk, and this helps them to determine the type of offender. So if you have a high risk person, somebody who's involved in a profession that, that is surrounded by violence, there's a mm -hmm. large prevalence of violence, that's going to be an issue compared to somebody who doesn't. And even not locking the doors, right, detective? Not locking the doors at night, if that's what she's really known for, it elevated her risk from low risk to medium risk. Sure. And, uh, you know, there was an um, indication that, that, that the apartment had not been ransacked. Um, I read somewhere that something was taken that, from the location that, that the investigators are aware of. Uh, they won't share it because it's hold back information. They don't want that information to be out there uh, in the event that they do home, home in on this suspect. They want to be able to, to have that hold back information. But um, other than that, it, it doesn't appear that the motive was was burglary or theft. And um, so, you know, if you eliminate burglary, theft, sexual assault, then then you really kind of get down to a, a, a very um, few interesting type of motives uh, you know was it revenge was it a revenge motive was it a professional hit and and if so you know we don't know enough about her lifestyle other than that she owned a restaurant she liked to go out to clubs and she was dating a married man you know so those things that you have to consider okay would would the wife hire a hitman to kill her i don't know uh was the husband threatening to leave his wife for her i don't know it, it appears that 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 Nori was was either ready to to cut this off or or had recently just done so. So, you know, it's it's hard to imagine that 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 could be the motive. But I mean, it, it really is a strange case that that leaves you saying, well, you know, why was she murdered? We have I haven't seen any autopsy reports either. Have you seen any autopsy reports out there at all? Why I have not. I, well, I've only I've only I haven't seen the autopsy report. Uh, I have seen it reported that an autopsy declared that she was killed by manual strangulation or correction of strangulation by a ligature. 
Yeah, and the reason I ask why I ask that, folks, is because I'm curious to see if there are any other defensive, uh, any kind of um, bruises at all around her body, aside from the strangulation, because it almost makes it seem like he might have caught her when she was sleeping. That's what I thought. I thought, you know, a blitz attack. Um, and and the the, uh, the investigator in an interview, he, he said that there was uh, no evidence of trying to remember the wording he used it wasn't violence but but basically indicated that there there wasn't uh other trauma to her other than you know being strangled so that that kind of goes with the theory she's in bed she's only dressed in panties and and i believe that that probably her killer uh came in on her and and did what he was there to do and left that, that's all you can surmise from the information we have because the only time he took was actually cutting the fingernails off. That was the only time he took. Besides Correct. That. Yeah, I mean, that we know of, of course. I mean, he could have been in there longer, but but there's no sign of anything that, that he would have been doing there, at least that's been released to the public. Now, a, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, interestingly, you know, the, there's, there's a lot of conversation about this apartment complex, how it's, you know, it's secured. You have to have a, a key card or, or some type of key to get in and out of the complex or into the complex and that uh, it's manned 24 seven. Um, and in fact, she actually spoke to a person at the front desk when she came in that night at two 30 in the morning and then checked her mail and went down the hall. So, you know, my first impression was, okay, so this is a, a you know, really secured apartment, a nice place. And um, you know, it, it limits access from outsiders. Now, sure, there's there's a, a lot of residents there, but you know that would actually help if that were the case. Well, according to investigators, there were quite a few people that that were coming and going. It's a Saturday night. It's Halloween, so it was pretty busy. A lot of activity, and and the problem, you know, the the difficulty that that the investigators have is that almost everybody's wearing Halloween costumes and masks, so they haven't been able to identify all of the people that were coming and going. And I'm wondering if that was, and I know we're going to get into the disagreement uh, or the difference of opinion between you and the investigating detective, because this also leads me to believe that it was premeditated. At least a plan was being executed here. A great, perfect night to do the murder, if you can call it that. Um, a night where everybody's going to be masked up more so than today. This is nine years ago. Um, access to the room. Maybe he knew the door was going to be unlocked, killed, cut the fingernails, walked out, locked the door, turn off the lights. And um, actually, before we get to the, to the difference of opinion, you also had another thing that you mentioned about the, um, the exterminator. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a, a very odd thing. Apparently uh, there's a, an exterminator who has access, uh, you know, a pass key or whatever and like a maid almost would have a pass key who goes from apartment to apartment and does his job and i would imagine that a, a person would probably knock a few times first to make sure he wasn't intruding but has as you know the right or access the the agreement to be able to, to go into these apartments and spray for bugs and, and leave and apparently uh at some point after she was murdered and before she was discovered, uh, the exterminator did, in fact, go in there and spray. And, and he never saw her on the bed, in the bed, didn't notice it. And, of course, he became a, a very uh, uh, high on the list suspect. But he was um, eliminated. He's interviewed and, and he uh, provided DNA and, and he's eliminated as a suspect. He didn't do it. But that's just kind of one of those very odd, odd type of things. I know we were talking about earlier that if folks, if you have any questions, by all means, hit us up on the chat. If you have any thoughts, what do you think could be the motive behind this? Anything we've left out so far. And by the way, two more days left tomorrow, 12 p.m. We have another live show uh, with Dr. Hickey talking about serial killers and their fantasies. It's a two-part series because next week we're going to be talking about signatures and trophies and the distinctions. And then Friday, we have a border update as well as a drug cartel update with retired HSI at 12 o'clock p.m. Pacific time. So you definitely want to catch us for those two. Um, so I did want to say, one, oh, go ahead. 
I did want to add something. Uh, we were talking about the exterminator. That also creates a little bit of a problem with the crime scene in, in reading it because with the door locked and the lights off, it, you know, a guy gets a, a certain idea about what this killer might have done, uh, you know, to exit, you know, secured the place, didn't want her to be found, you know, at least not very, you know, at least not right away, um, turn the lights off, things like that. But the truth of the matter is the exterminator may have done that. It, it may have been unlocked when he went there and the lights on. And since no one was home, he might have turned the lights off and locked the door. So hopefully the investigators uh, asked him that because that's that's kind of a basic when when you speak to people that that have been to a crime scene before you're there even even the responding patrol officers uh, paramedics any type of first responder those are questions you ask you know how, how did you find this room you know were the lights on were the lights off uh, was the door locked unlocked can you take us through a sweep really quickly in regard what i mean by that is what do you when you folks walk in what are the first things you're doing you're checking door handles you're checking footprints on the carpet. What other things would you be checking in that room? Uh, as an investigator, the first thing you're doing is finding out what everyone else did before you got there, because, hmm. you know, typically, uh, you're, you know, the homicide investigator arrives after a uh, um, number of other people have come in and, and, and already departed the scene before you get there. And, and crime scene control and management is, is really important in almost every agency in the country spends a lot of time educating uh, the officers who respond to make sure that they really control the crime scene. There's a crime scene log. Anyone who enters and exits, they have to, to sign in, put the time in, time out, the, their reason for being there. And, um, and, and more importantly, they, they are to control the scene. If a person doesn't need to be in there, then, then that officer shouldn't allow them to go in because, you know, uh, unfortunately you get a lot of people that, that just feel like they need to be in a crime scene because they arrived. Um, so as an investigator, when you get there, you're going to, you're going to speak to the handling officers, uh, the patrol officers who are there, who have taken control of this crime scene, who have secured it, who have generated this log that that's going to show you who has been there before you and why they entered the crime scene. And you're going to talk to them about anything that, that has transpired before you arrive. Fascinating. Um, so tell us about the, the difference of opinion between you and the, the current detective in regards to whether it's premeditated or not. Yeah, and, and to say a disagreement or even a difference of opinion, again, I, I just have to say, I don't know what he knows. So, I, I mean, I'm not I'm not disagreeing with the guy. I'm, I'm just saying based on what I'm reading, um, it, it seems a little bit. One of the things he said in an interview is he didn't believe that that this was a premeditated murder that he, he believes that, that whoever did this was there for another reason. And then the murder happened. And, um, you know, he might have some really good information that, that, you know, solidifies his position on that. I, I don't know. So I, I don't want to disagree with him or argue with him because I just don't know what he knows, but from the information we have, uh, the fact that, that, it wasn't a sexual assault murder. There doesn't appear to be, uh, well, we know she arrived home alone and we don't have any information that, that anyone came to see her afterwards. She had left her phone accidentally, apparently in the taxi cab. And um, so she would have even had a way to call someone and say, Hey, you know, why don't you come over? I came home early tonight, you know, or whatever. And, and it doesn't appear that, that she had uh, again, she undressed on her way from the front door to the bedroom. And, you know, most of the people watching this can relate to that. Everyone's done that. You've come home from a night of partying or whatever. Your intention is to hit the rack and, and, you know, you're, you're going to worry about picking up your clothing the next day or, or whatever, but it appears that that's all she did. So it really has me questioning, well, why does, why does this investigator believe that, that someone was there uh, with her that didn't, who didn't have the intention of murdering her. And so either there's, there's some information that, that he has that we don't in that regard, or, um, you know, perhaps he's, he's wrong on that. I don't know. We do have a question from Becky. Welcome back, Becky. There's about a 15 second delay, Danny, just FYI. So when the questions pop up or when I see them, but before we get to Becky's question, 
Yeah, he must. If he if he thinks it isn't premeditated, I'm wondering. It must be something like somebody slept next to her in bed, and she let them in. Um, they had a conversation, maybe thinking about going a little further that night. Never did. Uh, so it would assume there'd be more evidence of something happening somewhere. I'm really curious where they picked up that DNA. Was it from her hands holding him, from her neck when she was being strangled? Was it uh, somewhere else in the house? I'm really curious to find that it out. Could, it could be something as simple as a, a wine glass or, you know, a, a drink, a bottle of beer, something that, that they attribute to someone other than the victim and, and they obtain DNA from it. And, and with that, you would say, okay, well, someone was here and not in a hostile uh, manner. And, and it could be something like that. You, you know, that's very reasonable, but you know, again, if she arrived home alone and she doesn't have her phone and she disrobes on her way to bed, it just seems unlikely to me that she was expecting a guest. Yeah. Here we go. We got a question from Becky. Let's see what you say here, detective. If, if the exterminator did not see her, could she have been murdered somewhere else and maybe the clothes planted? I, I don't have any information that that's um, the case. And it's not likely in in an apartment building uh, such as that, it'd be very, very difficult to, to do that and not be detected in an apartment building with security cameras everywhere. Um, and also, generally speaking, a crime scene, it's, it's, it's fairly uh, simple to determine if a person was murdered elsewhere and, and the body moved. And, and that's you know, through various uh, forensic uh, methods. Yeah, that'd be kind of, I guess I'm assuming if it's a hallway, I don't know what kind of apartment complex, but it looked like it was a hallway complex. It's really, that's probably why he didn't take her out of the room because it's going to be extremely risky to try to move her at all, I guess. Well, I don't think that he'd have a reason to take her out of the room. It's, it's, it's her yeah. apartment and he obviously had, he didn't belong there. So to move her at all, there's, there's no reason for it, no matter what type of murder it was. Interesting thought, Becky, though. We, we definitely love the questions because that gives us, gets us thinking. And maybe if somebody over there is watching or listening who was there that night, it might trigger something in their head. You really just don't know, right? Uh, maybe you, the, uh, the moving of the body, whatever it is, could give somebody an idea of something that happened that night. And that can be the leading tip that gets there. So right. with cameras, nobody was seen leaving. Uh, Though I don't think they had a camera on that apartment door, but the problem wasn't the problem was the masks, right, detective? Yeah, and it said that security cameras were throughout the building in the garage. So, and they did see people coming and going all night. You know, that was the the whole part that the investigators were saying. You know, this is frustrating because we can't identify these people, and um, and, and again, that that has me questioning. So, was that a, a crime of opportunity or was it planned specifically because on Halloween, a person could get away with coming in and out in a disguise. And it, may, it really makes you wonder if that's the case. And, and another reason why I don't think that it was a happenstance uh, murder. Yeah, me neither. Um, you know, the other thing too, and I don't mean any disrespect whatsoever to the brother, but I'm assuming they checked his DNA too, right? They did. They, they absolutely, they, you know, and, and you do those things uh, with, you know, with a tremendous amount of, of respect and explain that, look, you know, uh, we, there's no reason to suspect you, but people are going to question and, and, you know, as you just did. So all of the males is male DNA that was found there and, and they're going to want to make sure they eliminate anyone who uh, could even be, you know, under that umbrella. And, and of course, in a murder like this, the people that, that are going to be immediately under the umbrella of suspicion are the boyfriends, the, the brother, you know, any, any male person that's close to her was recently with her last saw her, you know, uh, the person who, who found her uh, dead in the apartment. Those, those are the people that you're going, the investigator is going to look at first. Yeah. I mean, those are some of the key questions, right? We always look at um, where did, where did they meet? Where was the attack? Where does the body discovered and deposited? Sometimes four steps. And it's interesting because in this case, 
all three in the same spot. Right. Or at least appears to be all three in the same spot. I mean, he, she could have met him at the door. She could have met him outside. She could have met him wherever inside the apartment. But for right now, all three spots seem to be the same. Um, and by meeting, you, you, you mean the, 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 the coming together at that moment, not the necessarily uh, um, knowing or, or having met. Um, yeah, the first part of the crime. To, yeah, correct. Right. Yeah. So that's going to be the part we're looking at. It looks like all three of them seem to be happening in the same exact location. And that's a picture correct. of her right here, folks. So uh, what happened to Nori Amaya? Really a, a mystery indeed because of the fact of the security cameras. Halloween complicates everything. Uh, the security cameras didn't help because everybody was masked up more than likely. Now, we know we talked about potential of somebody working there, but it looks like they probably, I'm assuming they checked everybody's DNA who worked there as well. You know, I would, I would think so, especially uh, like whoever she spoke with at the desk when she came in that night, because presumably that's the last person to see her alive uh, other than the killer. And, you know, there's, there's other things that, that could have taken place here. I mean, if you just want to kind of speculate, um, if, if she knew all of her neighbors and perhaps if, if there was a neighbor who uh, had an interest in her, you know, maybe they ran into each other in the hallway on her way to the apartment and, and maybe she invited him in for a drink. So, you know, my speculation about that she arrived alone is, is just that speculation. And again, I don't have, you know, uh, even, even a small percentage of all the facts and the details on this case, but, but there are other things that could have happened and uh, you know, someone could have easily, you know, joined with her, you know, once she left the lobby of that, that um, apartment complex and, and headed to her room, you know, there's a number of other things that, that may have taken place. And, um, you know, we just don't know. I, I haven't seen it mentioned and we just don't know. And I want to add something else too, folks, but I want to get a qualifier too. You know, I would have liked to know where the sheet was, if it was on her body, if it was covering her. Um, when we look at serial killers, a lot of times if they cover the victims or homicides, a lot of times that's because of some kind of shame, regret, respect, believe it or not, towards the victim in some capacity. Uh, I, remember the, I remember a serial killing or a mass murder that happened a while back ago, years ago, where he killed his family, but he had posed them in restful positions, covered them, uh, took very good care of their clothes, put them all back on nicely in which Ray tipped off the homicide detectives that this person respected these individuals compared to somebody right. who would have violently attacked them like a crime of passion or something of that nature. Right. Yeah, it's... Um, my understanding is that, that she was partially covered, or actually my understanding is that she was probably mostly covered. I think that the uh, the brother or the sister, when they when they first arrived and went into the room that they saw her hair uh, protruding from beneath this blanket or sheet and, and maybe part of the body, but the brother uncovered her and saw that she was uh, nude other than wearing panties. So you have to, from that, you have to assume that she was uh, mostly covered between that and the fact that the exterminator was in there and, and didn't notice her, but yeah, maybe he didn't go in the bedroom. I don't know. That's what my guess is, which is still odd. You have somebody who goes into the room if somebody's sleeping. Uh, I wonder if he actually went through with it and did the extermination of the, of the whole entire place. Um, that would get the funny feeling that wouldn't go over well with the guest. <laughs> if you're sleeping in another room and, and you're in that house and she doesn't know about it. Yeah, I don't know. And maybe her bedroom door was closed. Um, there's no mention of that. They're just, mm. you know, they talk about the front door being locked, but, you know, and, the, and that the lights were off, but it doesn't mention at least the interviews that I've read and listened to, there's no mention of whether or not the bedroom door was open or not. So maybe the bedroom door is closed and, and the exterminator went to the you know common areas and thought, well, maybe someone's sleeping and didn't hear me knock and I don't want to bother them. I'm off to the next, next apartment. Who knows? Just to give our listeners, we, we have quite a bit of listeners. Thank you everybody for joining us. Uh, another process Everybody's got law and order in their head, right? That's usually what we see in our head, law and order and the different other homicide shows. So you guys have already inspected the area. You've looked at the area. Now you start gathering your witness list. 
or not witness list, but your uh, potential suspect list, people who are friends, family. How do you determine what first? You to mean uh, to like prioritize your interviews and your suspect list? Exactly. How do you find out well, who does she know? Who does she not like or who did not like her? Things of that nature. Right. Well, typically, I mean, that's you're, you're going to start with the people closest to her. And, and that's going to that's going to be in every case. You know, the, you get the people that are closest to the victim. And uh, as I mentioned before, the last to see her alive, the, the one to find her dead. Those are the people you're going to interview in depth in the very beginning of, of the investigation. And that's why that's why I always say you've heard everyone talk about the first 48. And I think there was even a show about that. Um, how the first 48 hours are critical and, and um, people may or may not know, but homicide detectives very, very typically uh, on a fresh call out on a, on a new scene and a new murder, um, they, they could work 24, 30, 48 hours without stopping because it's that critical and it's that important. You're, you're needing to lock down these, these people's statements and, and get everyone interviewed as quickly as possible, but not the process is it quick you want to get to them quick, but the interviews sometimes can last for hours. Um, you know, if, if someone's raising any suspicions with, with some of the things they're telling you, for instance, in this case, there was a, uh, a friend, a male friend who told the investigator that he didn't have a key to her apartment and yet he did. And I'm not sure how the investigator knew that, but he became someone that, that was high on the suspect list. And um, according to the investigator, He's still someone that, that they're looking at that they think, you know, um, he may be involved. Now, I have to assume that they haven't gotten DNA from him because otherwise, you know, they wouldn't still be looking at him if he had been eliminated uh, through the DNA. And of course, if the DNA had matched, we wouldn't be having this show. So um, my, you know, what I'm thinking is probably uh, this guy's a, a person of interest, maybe, you know, maybe even considered a suspect, but he's not willing to provide his DNA and they don't have enough to get a court order to obtain it uh, is, is kind of how I'm looking at that particular suspect. Can you grab the DNA without having to formally ask for it? The old, here's, here's a glass of water. I'll take it. Thank you. You can. Yes. I mean, there's, there's okay. lots of court decisions and, and as long as you're not trespassing or violating laws, um, to, to do that, you, you can absolutely, uh, obtain DNA from people that has been discarded, you know, now of course you have to document that, you know, really well, if, if you see someone throw down a cigarette and there's 30 cigarettes on the ground, when you walk up there, uh, you know, you're going to have to be able to, to articulate to a court, you know, you, you have to meet that judicial scrutiny to be able to say this was his cigarette. And so this DNA matches this individual and, it matches our DNA from the crime scene. And then once you have all of that, then of course you, you would be able to get, you know, search warrants and court orders for all kinds of other things to continue your process. Interesting. So you're now, when you start interviewing individuals, obviously it just can't be you, you don't have enough time. And so you have to have other individuals. Are they normal police officers? Are there other detectives that go interviewing no. people? Do you have a set list of questions that you want asked? Uh, you never have a set list of questions um, to, to answer the first part of your question. So typically what happens in every department's different, you know, every, every department has a different setup with how their homicide guys work. Um, there's a lot of departments. And, and I know this from traveling the country as a homicide detective, you, you end up going to a lot of places looking for your guys and you work with homicide squads all over the country. And a lot of them, every murder they're, they're, um, the, the whole team is involved in it, at least in the initial stages. And, and one of the team members is the primary. He keeps it. But everyone kind of, uh, you know, descends on this case and, and, and they start working on it. And they're, you know, assigned, okay, you do these interviews, you do those interviews. Our department was a little bit different. You and your partner get the case. And, um, you know, you can ask for as many assisting teams that you need. Uh, for instance, I had a case where, uh, a murder in broad daylight. And as it happened, there was a city bus that had just arrived and people were coming off the bus. So we, we had, you know, scores of, of witnesses and, and of course a crime scene that, you know, we had to block off parts of a, you know, major um, intersection and, 
in a business and, and so forth. So, you know, I basically asked for most of our team, which, you know, was another five or six pairs of partners. And then, and then you can divide up the duties with that. And what I would do in my cases, and I think most investigators are going to do this is, is the primary uh, or the primary, if it's, if it's two partners, there are primaries, they're going to want to talk to the most important people. Um, and, and all of their other investigators, they're assisting them. You know, there's no doubt they're competent, but they're not going to be married to this case and take it all the way through, you know, whatever process you end up going through. So, you know, you might, in, in the case with the, uh, the murder in broad daylight in the, in the city bus, you know, I had, you know, probably a half a dozen investigators helping me do interviews, but I took the, the, the female who had actually obtained a license plate of our suspect vehicle. She was critically important to me and I, and I needed to, to speak to her myself. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the sister of one of the victims, you know, there, there are certain people that the primaries are going to invest, they're, they're going to interview them and have their assisting investigators interview others. It's not very often in my experience that you're going to have patrol officers go do invest, uh, interviews for a homicide case. It would have to be like a rare case, like all those people on a bus kind of thing where you just maybe don't have enough time to bring people you, down. You can, you can do a, what you call a, uh, um, it's, it's usually in a canvas. You have the patrol officers do a canvas and find out. It's almost, uh, it's almost like triage. You know, you're having the, the officers contact all of these individuals and, and ask if they saw anything and they're going to take some notes and, you know, document this is who this person is. This is what they say. And they say that they did see something or that they did not see something. And both of those statements are equally important because, this person might come back later and, and say something different than that, but, but you can get your officers to go out and get all of this information. And then all of this information comes back to you, the investigator, the, the primary investigator, and then you go out and, and you speak to the people that, um, you know, you'll prioritize. Okay. Let's, let's first talk to the people that said they saw something, but not much, you know, and, and you just kind of go down the list. So in every case is different, you know, that's the thing um, that makes the job, uh, extremely uh, demanding and interesting and taxing is that, you know, every case is, is very different. And one thing too, folks, if I may detect them about memory, memory is not like a Polaroid picture. It doesn't work no. that way. Um, it always, every time you access a memory, uh, it can come back fragmented and you might access a memory, especially of a traumatic event. It may not always come back clear for you the first time, it might get clearer the second time. There was one study I remember, Detective, where, where they did a study on people who had been robbed. And I think the overwhelming majority of individuals, when they were robbed by somebody with a gun, didn't remember the gun that they saw during the robbery. They actually remembered the gun that they had last seen on TV. It influenced their memory. And uh, yeah, so that's very interesting. Yeah, and, and also you can have uh, three people, even three very observant people, three police officers, you know, who are trained observers, uh, witness something, and each of them see it a little bit differently than the other. And you know, and unfortunately, those are the types of things that that a uh, you know a defense attorney perhaps is going to call into question and and you know um, make it appear as if someone's being untruthful. But but that's just the reality, as you well know. Well, yeah, they're going to definitely jump on that because it causes, again, you have to be, um, without, without uh, what was it, what's it called? Oh, shoot, I forgot now. Beyond a reasonable doubt, that's a 99% right. accuracy for that jury. So if there's any doubt <laughs> that increases at the 9, 5 or 10%, right. that case is out. Right. And that's what the defense attorney's job is, just to be able to create just enough doubt to get you out of there. Yeah. Um, that's the way the court system works. Well, look, hey, some people are innocent, and sometimes that benefits them quite a bit. So in this case, again, folks, thank you for joining us. Remember, we'll be back tomorrow, 12 p.m. Pacific time, and on Friday, 12 p.m. Pacific time. Tomorrow, we're going to be looking at serial killers and their fantasies. Make sure you ask questions if you have any. On Friday, we'll be looking at the border situation and the drug cartels with retired HSI, Victor Avila. Let us know, too, in the comments if you're watching this now or after. If you like the live versions of the show, we're looking at moving some of the other shows live. I know 
the drug cartel and uh, reported on the border will be live every other Friday. Uh, that's the way the host wanted it. So that's the way we're going to go with it. So if the host prefer it live and you prefer it live, we're here for you. So more than happy to do that. Um, again, once again, we were talking about the Salsa Queen, a complicated case uh, with the, the apartment building, security cameras. You can go back and listen to the show if you haven't listened to everything. We, we detailed how everything started off. She walked into the building. They had cameras, talked to the guard, talked to the person at the front desk, went up to her room, was uh, murdered in the room. Don't know who it was. Nothing violent happened except obviously for the strangulation that happened, but no other excessive beating, no other sexual assault that we know of, anything of that nature. Nobody saw anything coming in or out. Uh, people have masks, so it's Halloween. Um, so far, everybody who was in their room so far has been DNA checked that we know of. And a lot of people who are males who had some kind of connection with her, like the boyfriend who was having an affair, um, I guess the last thing, uh, Detective, is really the hitman possibility is interesting. Like we said, it does happen. It does, it does. happen. And if you hire the right person, they know how to do this. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's a possibility. You you don't dismiss any um, possibility, but uh, you know, I, I don't know. And 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 obviously, the uh, the investigators on this are, are stumped. They do have DNA, so any tips could be helpful. And there's a $25,000 reward. And um, I, I guess you will probably put a link to uh, Washington, D.C., the homicide. Um, we have a phone number if you want me to give that out. Yeah, give it out for us if you can, if you have it on with you right now. Area code 202-645-9600. I put it on the chat too, folks, if you need to call Washington, D.C., PD. Um, have you you worked how many cases years in a homicide? Um, over a hundred. I, I don't hundred oh, something. I believe. Yes. Did you ever see anyone with a hitman? No, not personally, but um, I know of others who did. You know, we in in LA County, our bureau had eighty investigators, and we processed anywhere between three to five hundred murder cases a year. So, you're privileged to not only the cases you are personally assigned and, and that you investigate, but you're um, among all the detectives in all of their cases. So um, it, it brings a lot of experience, not just your own, but you, you have the experience of everyone around you. We were all housed in one location. So um, I am aware of, of cases where hitmen were used. I, I did assist on one case um, in, in a very uh, minor capacity but uh, it involved a hitman, and, and they're very interesting cases. Is there, is there any case that um, that are easier to solve, aside from the usual suspects still there, um, but are gang cases, for instance, gang homicides easier to solve, uh, domestic, via, uh, domestic homicides or anything of that nature? Well, you know, um, interesting because of the case we're discussing, is that if there's not a motive, that makes the case right away, uh, or, or a motive, if you cannot identify a motive, it makes the case very difficult to solve. And that's why I've talked about, you know, several times in, during this discussion that, you know, there's no indication that it was a sexual assault murder. And, and so, and there's no indication that it was a robbery. So it's a, it's, you have to question, okay, why, why was she murdered? And since we don't know that, it makes it very difficult to even know what direction to go on the case. Um, the easiest cases to solve, uh, to your question, are domestic cases because, you know, usually the motive is pretty apparent and, and the suspects are known by the victim. And they're someone that you're going to quickly come into contact with during the course of your investigation in the very early stages, usually. So um, those, are, those are typically... I don't want to say the easiest, but those those are usually a little bit simpler than a case like this. And in gang cases, although they oftentimes aren't very complex uh, in in you know design, they're they're very often difficult to solve just because no one to talk to you. You know, the a lot of times the victim's family, friends, whoever 
they've even witnessed it. They know who did it, but they're not going to tell you. So that, and, and, and other people in the community out of fear, they're not going to talk to you. So, so those cases become very, very difficult. And, um, and there's a whole different way to, to deal with, with gang cases. Excellent. Excellent. All right, folks, by the way, you can check out Danny's other episodes on unsolved murders. You can find the playlist and we have some other cases. Check them out. Maybe you've lived in that area. Maybe you knew somebody who lived in that area during the time of some of these unsolved murders that can be able to give a tip. You never know. We had a, we had a cold case go solved the other day. I was just reading. I told Detective Danny Smith earlier, there was a cold case that happened where the individual was in the hospital on his deathbed, actually, truthfully, on his death, not the victim, I'm sorry, the, um, the offender was on his deathbed in the hospital, told his friend that he had committed a murder 20 years prior. When he passed away, the friend then went to the police department and told him that my friend said he committed a murder 20 years ago in Pembroke. You can look up the, the case if you like. The officers went back, did a DNA swab, and found a match. So the, he, he was right. He was the one who murdered this unsolved case. It had been unsolved for, I think, 30 years. And it came to a conclusion when he finally confessed it on his deathbed to his friend. And uh, so you never really know how these things are going to end up. You just don't. Somebody can remember something. It can give them, it can give the police a, a certain direction to go to to be able to solve these cases. Absolutely. Danny, anything else you want to add before we get ready to, to sign off? I don't think so, Doc. Uh, thank you very much. And, and thanks to all who have uh, joined and listened and look forward to your comments. What is it again, the code? Is it 10-7 or 10-8? I can't remember which one it is to tune back on. <laughs> which code? What, what you, to leave? Out <laughs> yeah, of service, 10-7. 10-7, that's what it was. Yeah. I remember now. So, folks, thank you very much for joining us. For those who tuned in late, you can catch the rest of this recording. You can see what we started off with the Salsa Queen trying to solve this murder. Again, if you know anybody who was in the area at the time of Washington, D.C., you never know. You really don't know. We thank you all for listening. Thank you for everybody who participated. We'll catch you all tomorrow, 12 o'clock Pacific time. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.